Mr. Nixon, what is the truth about our ability to fight the growing menace of communism? Well, first, we must recognize communism for what it is. Mr. Khrushchev understands only strength and firmness. To apologize to him just means weakness. Our next president must show clearly that America won't stand for being pushed around anywhere in the world. So, welcome to Timber Sycamore. What up? Um, today we're here to discuss uh, the war in Afghanistan, I guess, the original one. The well, original, the, yeah. Within within reason, the original American one. Oh, okay. Wait, no. Is that even true? Uh, the covertly I mean, American one? As opposed to the overtly American one? I guess, Afghanistan, Afghanistan's an old country, dude. I guess implying that there is any real separation between the wars is kind of unfair, right? No. Between the war in Afghanistan that began in 2001, there's like, there's lines, you can draw them. Yeah, I mean, the Civil War is a continuation, though, to a certain extent. And the U.S. is still choosing sides in it. Like, it's not like the U.S. disengages. I mean, you can view it as a sequel if you want. It's like the season two. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's really, like, it's a continuing 40-year conflict with varying levels of engagement from outside sources. If you think about it, all con- the, the, really, conflict has been engaging since 1848. It's all just been one big conflict between between the proletariat and the bourgeois. <laughs> think about it like that. Might as well run it back to France then. Yeah. The source of all of humanity's is... <laughs> I guess Cromwell, maybe. The English. Even bigger source. That's undeniably true. The That's English so are true. a huge source of ills for so many people. Yeah. All right. My name is Hayden DePriest. I did the research today that we will be going over for the 73 coup in Afghanistan. The rise of Daoud Khan, former prime minister, then currently president, and the following sour revolution in 1978, and the consequences that eventually led to the collapse of the Soviet Afghani government and to the invasion by the Soviet Union. Yeah, and uh, start with your name. Honestly, uh, so my name is Michael Vajicelli. There's a jarring amount of information that we might be throwing at you today. Uh, we might end up deciding to break this into two episodes as the episode goes on. Um, I'm going to be discussing the development of the Mujahideen as, uh, especially regards the Peshwar Seven, uh, who are the primary movers and shakers inside of the Mujahideen. Uh, with the only exception that I'm going to be mentioning today being his Biwadat, uh, which is a Sunni Mujahideen group. Or Shia Mujahideen group, Jesus Christ. All right. So how do we start this? So when you looked into the two background revolutions... Um, Among other things, yes. Well, yeah. What were the primary inciting factors that lead from the development of, I guess, 
through the 50s and 60s, we're going to start seeing some of this build, right? Mm -hmm. um, so by 73, what are we looking at? So by 73, this is a, it's an interesting question, just because what we have to look at here, the kind of background that I did to present this topic was a little bit more than just the reign of the previous king, who was king of Afghanistan from the 30s up until 73. So that would but be it also shot, includes right? the reign of his father. So we should talk a little bit about the actual uh, like succession of the leaders of Afghanistan, starting with Dawood Khan and then going backwards twice over. Dawood Khan takes over in the 73 coup of Afghanistan. He's the former prime minister. He's been out of power for about 10 years at this point, and he leads a bloodless coup while the king, who is King Mohammed Zahir Shah, is undergoing medical treatment in Italy. So, so prior to this revolution, we had the rule of the king, Zahir Shah. And Zahir Shah inherited the throne at the age of 19, sometime in, it was in 1933. So before Zahir Shah became king, his father was king and his name was, I believe I have it written somewhere here. I believe it's Nadir Khan. Should be on my board right over there. I did not bring my schizophrenia board out with me. I brought my uh, I typewritten my typewriter pages with me. Does this look like a schizo? It's all organized, dude. So is mine. That doesn't mean that when you start pinning things to a cork board, it doesn't look like you're schizophrenic. I think I don't think this looks schizophrenic at all. Mm. I think this looks beautiful. I think it makes me look like a organized real researcher. This is like what they have in newsrooms, you know. This is the this is a this is the the big pitch board. All my. You're getting real close to Charlie Day, though. <laughs> I like to think of myself more as a Charlie Rose than a Charlie Day. <laughs> you know, I've got some, you know, I, I, I can tell you what's really in this can after all. So. Uh, yeah, I have a mixed drink over on the table. I just haven't gone and gotten it yet. This is the podcast for alcoholics, by the way. If you study this stuff long enough, you'll eventually get there. So in order to yeah. properly, like, articulate the things that I'm trying to articulate, I would like to be able to share my presentation how do I do that? Uh, there should be a little share button at the bottom. It'll I be like share. a plus sign. I see share screen. Do you see a plus sign? Plus sign? Yeah. Oh, there it is. It doesn't show up. Okay, so I have to do... Okay. We're not cutting this. This is going to be... Just, just, we're going all in. Yeah, we're not uh, cutting the section of us not knowing how to work the uh, computer. Yeah, no, we're experts. Actually, that gives us good academic credit. Like, we'll seem like professors if we don't know how technology works. I genuinely don't know how technology works half the time. Me neither. Is it sharing your thing? It's processing. Ah, yeah, it takes a little bit. Okay, so can you hear me, Michael? I can. All right. Are we all ready to, are we all ready to begin? I'm going to pull myself, I'm going to pull my laptop a little bit closer so that I can be a little bit more intimate with the audience. All right. So Mohammed Zahir Shah is king of Afghanistan until 17th of July, 1973. This is obviously the time when the uh, 73 coup actually takes place, which we'll get to in a minute. So what marks Zahir Shah's reign as king, I think is probably the intensification of what I would call hyper-modernization that takes place in Afghanistan really beginning in the 1960s. So for the first about 30 years of his reign, Zahir Shah ended up delegating a lot of power to his uncles who were regents at the time for him, and also to various cabinet petty ministers 
This includes to some degree Prime Minister Daoud Khan. So this all changes in the 1960s when he establishes the new constitution. The constitution is supposed to be the champion of what is called new democracy, which is hard to find any information about. Essentially what this constitution does is it establishes the supremacy of secular law, which is a sort of contentious issue for the conservative Muslims who still live in Afghanistan. And it compromises with all of the different various factions that are you know, currently operating in Afghanistan. And we're gonna to get to that in a little bit. It's hard to really present the background for this. You just kind of have to like dive in head first and then you'll start to piece it together. It's like a fucking Tarantino movie or something. Anyway, so this constitution is actually yeah. notable because it, because uh, Daoud Khan has to resign from his position as prime minister. I guess we'll get to this when we get to the next slide. So I'll just skip around. So we have Muhammad Daoud Khan. They're both named Muhammad. They are cousins. He's the cousin of King Zaire Shah. Uh, so what marked his reign as prime minister was effectively a very hardline Pashtun nationalism or Pashtun chauvinism, a kind of pan-Pashtunism. So the Pashtuns, for those who don't know, are an ethnic group that live, I believe, principally in the south of... Uh... Yeah, so the Pashtuns, if you don't know, are people that live principally in the south of Afghanistan. And they are also an ethnic group that you will find residing in Pakistan as well in the south region of that as well. So part of Daoud Khan's like overarching philosophy, ideology, so to speak, uh, is the idea that uh, Afghanistan is the nation of the Pashtun peoples and so therefore has the right to, one, reclaim these Pashtun lands and two, bring these other Pashtun people into the folds. So this ends up getting uh, Daoud Khan into quite a bit of hot water during his tenure as prime minister. He was somebody who rejected the colonial Duran line, which was the line that was drawn by British protectorate authorities in the 19th century to divide Pakistan and Afghanistan. So there was a crisis on the Pakistani border with some, it was a, you would call it a border skirmish, I suppose, with a little bit of like mixed fighting on both sides that doesn't break out into full out war. And because of this, he is asked to resign. He does not follow that immediately. He asked for a new constitution to be drafted. This is prior to the passing of the 64 constitution, one that would basically guarantee a one-party state and a little bit more power for him. And once that was rejected, he then is basically forcibly resigned. The 64 constitution passes, and an interesting and pertinent point of the 64 constitution is that it bars any members of the royal family from being able to participate in politics to the degree that they have. This obviously excludes the king, but it does include the former prime minister. And so most commentators, I believe, do think that this is essentially an explicit provision against the prime minister. Uh, yeah, that's most of what I've seen as well. Uh, and if it's not, it's like an explicit provision against the prime minister and several other close family members. Right here. So I know that you can't, it'd be really cool if you could see my cursor, like it was screen share, but you can't, but you can see right here, if you look right under where it says Afghanistan, you have this little white area. That is the area that like is inhabited principally by Pashtun peoples. You can also see that we have different Iranian groups that kind of like fill out most of this map until you get to the very north around Mazari Shari and Baglan. And oh my God, I can't even read the map because can you make the culture thing go away real quick? Yeah. Because I've got some, we'll put it back when we need to, when I'm not looking at legends. Okay, so you can see that if you look at the map right under where it says Afghanistan, we have the 
This is the section where the Pashtun peoples live, and we have different Iranian peoples that fill out the majority of the map until you get to the northeast, where you see the border with Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, where you'll find a lot of the different Turkic minorities that also live in Afghanistan. You can also see right alongside the border, so it's going to be like right around Peshawar and Jalalabad, right there is about where the border conflicts mostly took place. Um, so while we have this map up, uh, it'll be worth pointing out um, that the northern area also includes um, some of the Durrani clan mm -hmm. of Pashtuns, who are the historically uh, royal line of tribal families. Um, and that the northeastern region is where uh, specifically Jabiat is going to be very strong um, because that's also including the Panjashir Valley and a few other regions. Uh, I just don't have another map to show you, so that's where I'm throwing it in. I think I threw a map in here somewhere. Ah. I'm going to find it. No, that's fine. Okay. Yeah, it takes forever for these slides to load. <clears throat> so upon doing, in the course of our investigation, we had found some old uh, New York Times articles from about the time, coincidentally, right before the actual coup took place. This one is from June 7th, 1973, describing the conditions of life during the reign of Zahir Shah. Nearly half the children here die before the age of one, and about a quarter of those surviving die before they are 12. There are about a thousand doctors in the whole country. Hundreds of thousands of Afghans live on less than $6 a month. Between 5 and 10% of the population is illiterate. Under a powerful and conservative king, Mohammad Zahir Shah, Afghanistan's nine-year-old experiment in constitutional democracy has floundered in a series of legislatures consisting of landowners, Muslim priests, and tribal elders. Possibly half the legislators in the current parliament are illiterate. In the 1950s, the king asked the United States to build and arm the Afghanistan army. Washington demurred. The army is Soviet-trained and armed. And we're going to see more examples of this Soviet integration that sort of happens during the reign of Zahir Shah, where there's a lot of dependency cultivated on the Soviet Union that sort of is moved away from during the reign of Dawood Khan. And again, that same parallel happens. It's a case of history repeating itself when we get to Hafizullah Amin, who is, well, if you know, you know, and if you don't know, you're going to know. And uh, the fact about doctors there later becomes very important to the development of the Mujahideen and specifically how they interact with local populaces. Okay. So the modernization in action, we, in order to get the proper read on things, I wanted to study and investigate the actual system of land ownership that was, uh, you know, contemporary to Afghanistan at this time and its origins. So what I found were quite a few different articles. One of them was from a Trotskyist by the name of Jonathan Beale, who is, I, who might be quoted in this presentation, might not. Uh, interestingly, the Mr. Beale, I believe, uh, does include some line at the very end of his little rant that if he was in Afghanistan, he'd be fighting with the Mujahideen because the principal, uh, the the principal uh, concern for the Afghans is obviously the presence of the Russians, and that needs to be combated. So that was interesting. That's 
I know that Mike, always, Mike, you always talk about the trot to neocon pipeline. What do you think about like the trot to Salafis pipeline? Uh, so it definitely exists. Uh, there's yeah. two who, uh, okay, he's not the only trot to Salafis. Let me say oh that. Oh my god! Yeah. Uh, there's another dude who I remember seeing him on Marxist Internet Archive one time and like reading a bunch of his shit because he goes from being a trot to following around Al Tusser to becoming a Salafist, then back to a trot, then back to a Salafist. And then he just becomes a conservative commentator, which is hilarious because he hits like all of the major groups that you could possibly imagine someone going through. He's like a 13 year old today. <laughs> uh, That's what the kids yeah. are doing. It's like a yeah, it's like if, proto TikTok. He couldn't have hit more of the right groups if he was on 4chan in 2012 and had an FBI handler. Just like us. Uh, 2012 is a little late for me, but yeah. Yeah, I was uh, I was 15 at the time. I didn't have an FBI handler, so. All right, where were we? Yes, so I'm starting to realize this presentation might be a little bit out of order. But in the 1960s, Zahir Shah takes, undertakes an effort to have all of the land in Afghanistan effectively titled to their rightful owners. And this is undertaken for the quite obvious reason of taxation. But this is interesting because there are a, like the system of land ownership that was in place is a little bit arcane and not even strictly, not even strictly completely analogous to like European feudal systems. They're really close, but it's just, it's, 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 it's a difficult task to undertake to find out exactly who the landlords are and how much land they own, and how much land they effectively control and who needs to be taxed for what. So uh, Fred Halliday and two articles he wrote for New Left Review in the 1970s, I believe they both came out uh, just around, yeah, just around the Sour Revolution in 78, uh, makes the claim that the history of non-colonialism in Afghanistan, failure to properly colonize Afghanistan to the degree that other places like India and Africa were colonized, did allow it to retain some form of pre-capitalist structures like proto-capitalist structures for longer than places that were assaulted by like intense commercialization. So this is, as a claim, this is interesting. I do think that we're going to see a little bit when we talk about Nadir Khan, that this is not the feudal system that existed in Afghanistan or quasi-feudal system is not strictly a series of vestiges of past practices, but is to some degree also a product of modernity which I will explain in a bit. So Zahir Khan, Zahir, uh, Zahir Shah creates the Department of Land Affairs or AMLAC, which is established to manage the land and register the properties for tax collection. So because this project is so grand in scope, brand new, happens at the sort of tail end of Zahir Shah's reign and has been interrupted by not one, but two different revolutions. The effect of government control like during the period of the reign of the Shah is rare and significantly declines after we get to 73 and then once again to 78. In 78 this becomes a problem because there is a significant amount of land reform that takes place after the Kalks take power and we'll talk about who the Kalks are in a minute. The land situation is like even from the perspective of like people who generally know what is going on locally Mm -hmm. So, like, the Mujahideen have a 
better idea within the regions that they are originally from of what is happening a lot of the time than the Soviet-backed government. But even then, they will, like, describe trying to collect taxes sometimes in, like, internal documents. And I remember reading it and being like, this sounds like the most fucking ass-backwards system I've ever heard of to try to make people pay for anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because, like... Like when we talk about the, the the distinction between the Kalk or the masses faction of the PDPA and the Parchami faction, like what you'll see a lot of the time is that the Parchamis were like principally urban, principally like demographically heterogeneous, and you'll see that the Kalks were principally like organized around the Pashtun peasantry, which doesn't seem true at all. It seems to be that they are both like that the entirety of the Marxist movement. What's interesting is that both the entirety of the Marxist movement in Afghanistan and the really the Mujahideen in general both seem to be things that grew out of like urban intellectual circles in the 1950s and 60s. And the Mujahideen largely don't even grow out of like Afghani intellectual circles. Like at least in part, they are coming out of Egyptian and Saudi intellectual circles. They do start to come out of Afghanistan once they have the University of Kabul established. And, you know, and I mean established in the sense that it is a, you know, like a like a permanent like figurehead institution within the Afghan community. Yeah, it really takes until Rabani is a professor there for any of them to have any like international significance. Um, but but effectively, these are both movements that did grow out of like the out of the urban intelligentsia. Yeah, and which is to say, which is to say, quite privileged to that to that degree. One would assume, therefore, quite disconnected from, like, uh, rural peasant life. And Rabani is also interesting because he's the only non-Pashtun leader. Yeah, I suppose. Like, the other six are all majority are all Pashtun majority organizations. So I really thought that I cut cut this slide, but this is Jonathan Neal. His name is Neil. I apologize. I can't. There are too many. Michael loves to throw names at me. I don't know how he remembers them all. But we'll skip this slide. Uh, Sometimes I don't. Yeah. So David Gibbs at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who is writing for the Studies in Comparative International Development Journal. Didn't do a lot of research on this journal. I'll be honest. He does cite quite a few different Marxists, including Wolf. Uh, or not Mark, like Marxist or like Marxist adjacent. So that's like Wolf, Brodel, Hobsbawm, Fanon. So I feel pretty confident this is the source. So the investigation that we did into the, you know, existing feudal structure in Afghanistan at the time led us to this source right here. And it was, it's this is all corroborated, not just in this, but in another book that I read called... Uh, Afghanistan under Soviet domination, and also in the Trotskyist newspaper that I had the quote on there for a little bit. So the leading village authority was the Khan, who was usually one of the largest landowners. Other village officials included the Malik, who was responsible for dealing with outsiders, and the Marab, who was in charge of allocating the local water sources. So what you see here is that there's an integration between, and this is very feudal sounding, there's an integration between like the ownership of the land and the 
governance and leadership of the territory as a whole, like the integration of the village with the landowner. The large landowners held higher than average levels of education. The political power in Afghanistan at this time is concentrated with people who own land. And it is an, it is an interesting system in the sense that nobody actually knows how much land is owned by any particular section of the population. The surveys that were happening under Zahir, uh, Zahir Shah don't ever actually complete. And by 78, the uh, PDPA throws out a bunch of different numbers at different times that all contradict each other. When they're saying so many, they're doing the like, they're doing the 99% rhetoric. Usually they'll say 13% uh, of the population owns 97% of the land that then becomes 10, 99 becomes 95 or 93. Uh, it might completely change and say 25 owns 75. Or no, it would be it'd probably be larger at that point. But in any case, like they have different ways of dividing this up and none of the numbers really make sense with each other. So it seems like nobody actually knows who owns what. PDPA like to do some adventurous number doctoring sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know, they always told me math was a liberal art, so. Yeah, that's fair. Uh... Numbers mean nothing, basically. So this is the part of the like story that I think has been buried. This is actually like the bombshell for me, which is the actual like one one part, one one like section of the origin of the existing feudal land system that we are later dealing with in seventy eight, and also to some degree in seventy three, which is the like reintroduction of a bunch of like conservative past practices, very reactionary, like turn from Nadir Khan, who was the king before Zahir Shah. So Nadir concentrates power with the monarchy and also links the monarchy back directly to the landowning chiefs of the religious leaders. So there is a kind of what you have starting in the 20th century like late 19th, early 20th century is the transition of Afghanistan from a feudal kingdom into a more modern kingdom where it is effectively, you are effectively ruling the country as a president, but with a sort of monarchical, like hereditary system. It has the aesthetic, it has the aesthetic semblance of monarchy. So what Nadir does is takes that aesthetic semblance and then provides it its actual constituent backing that you always see it within feudal societies, which is the linking of the monarchy to the landowning chiefs. Also rolls back a lot of different just progressive civil rights measures that had happened since that time. This includes disenfranchising women and making the veil compulsory. So this has actually reversed again once Sahir Shah becomes king. And it's hard to know if that's part of his liberalization, modernization project, or if that's just the or if that was just the natural flow for what was effectively a sort of bloated royal bureaucracy at this point. It, I kind of got the feeling that it was a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. That's usually how these things go. Yeah. Yeah. So we are. So that's just to speak a little bit about like why I say this is that map of Afghanistan, by the way, a little bit about why I say that to some degree, the vestiges of the feudal system that exists in Afghanistan are to some degree a product of modernity in the sense that they are 
really not actually any older than the early 20th century. And it's also why I believe that like, you're going to see a lot of people say that the reason that the peasants tended to reject like calcus land reform is because they were very, or just calcus reform in general, is because they were very deeply socially conservative and they just weren't willing to, they just weren't willing to be like thrust into the future yet because it seems like that's already not the case. Like there is a uh, substantial like expansion in mass education that happens uh, under Daoud Khan because that's, you know, the way that the party, the way that the state sees as the best way to modernize is to have like mass level primary education for practically everybody in the country. Right. That's definitely a significant narrative that is pushed yeah. is that like, oh, these poor backwards tribal people just couldn't handle modernization. And that is the myth that we are going to bust today, hopefully. Yeah. Where am I? And like from the other side of this, like the on the ground leaders of the Mujahideen are largely modernizing, like in at least some sense. In what sense would that be? Like, uh, so there's this like weird division between internal and external leadership. Mm -hmm. Uh, that starts to develop as a result of external leadership basically only existing to distribute resources and provide like financial backing from foreign countries, right? So the guys who are actually in Peshwar have very little to do with anyone who is actually in Afghanistan. Um, and in some cases, like Jabiat, uh, are actively sabotaging their own leadership inside of Afghanistan. Like, Masood is far and away the best military commander. Mm -hmm. um, Rabiani actively does not give him weapons and supplies because he does not want to make Masood stronger than himself because he is a politician first. Um, but they're not the only ones. Like, inside of Afghanistan, you have Mujahideen are basically just throwing up like random alliances with random other groups based on proximity, based on, you know, tribal affiliation, based on national affiliation, based on language. Um, all of which leads to these external divisions that exist not really mattering as much to them. Mm -hmm. Except in as much as I'll pay lip service to whatever f the fuck fight you're having with so-and-so in Peshwar. I'll take away the presentation. Get back here on stream. I will. I'm outside. What are you doing outside? Smoking. I was taking I advantage I've of... Just, I've decided I, I don't... I taking advantage of your presentation time. Oh, well, I've decided I don't want to do the presentation because I don't want people to see that I'm plagiarizing it in real time. I mean, we're citing sources. Well, we're citing, we're doing a lot more than citing. We are borrowing aggressively from some people. Yeah, I don't want them to see it. Like, these tables are not all that useful. I might just make a separate presentation in the future just for tables. Um, so we were talking about the land and the land reforms and also the 
like odd developments that are happening regarding the 78 revolution and some of the land reforms there. No, we're, we're not, not, we're not at the 78 revolution yet. We're not. Right. Close. We were discussing we're not how even, like, we are not at 73, dude. We mentioned how they fucked with their numbers a little bit. Um, but we are in Zahir Shah's reign and discussing are, his are, modernization efforts. That's a good place to. That's a good place for us to pick up, I think, because part of the modernization effort was encouraging was encouraging foreign investment into Afghanistan, which is, you know, par for the course, right? So what you begin to see is this sort of again quasi feudal, sort of uniquely Afghani system of land ownership come into direct kind of like contact with, you know, uh, capital investment, commercialization, you might call it. And what happens as a result, because of this is a, like it, this happens principally in the 60s and the 70s. And what you will see from this is a lot of incursion of debt for landowners, both small and large, petty and absolutely grand. Um, debts that are incurred that are not actually even wiped out until provision number six, decree number six during the communist revolution, sometimes anywhere between 10 to 15 to even 40 years later. Like these debts are still on the board, most of them. Commercialization was also causing land concentration and the dispossession of small land holdings due to increased debt defaults. The money lenders were encouraging causing increased landlessness during the period 6972 this is interesting afghanistan had a disastrous drought during which up to 500,000 people died of starvation jesus christ so this is interesting to note just because a lot of the times what you will find is that these revolutions we will always talk about them as being the consequence of the march of history based on conditions that have been existing for hundreds maybe even 150 years but i think this is interesting to set the stage just for the fact that like this is the kind of like environment that is happening just a few years before it actually happens just a few years before Dawood khan actually leads the coup which is a revolution depending on who you ask because it is a bloodless coup which implies that there is some level of popular support or else complete it's a, it's a mostly bloodless coup mostly yeah you try and do a more bloodless coup then if you're so good at it well so uh, i mean i'm not saying that i can carry out a bloodless coup uh, you already pulled one off with uh, laura didn't you <laughs> you cooed ryan real hard i'm i'm gonna skip that one completely no you're not put it in um you're, you're a coup hold or no he's so... a coup hold <laughs> <laughs> does that make king zaire a coup hold as well uh sort of uh, no, that makes Daoud Khan cool. It's just all sorts of fuckery happening in Afghanistan. Yeah, Daoud Khan is uh, both the bull and the coup hold. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, first is first is tragedy, then is farce. Um, first you're the bull, then you're the cuck. That's how history goes. So I've got the Hegel right here if you want me to pull it out. Are we just going to show off phenomenology every time we're on stream? Yeah. Or philosophy, yeah, gonna, right? I, I'm just gonna put on my put on my kefia, my shimag in the traditional head wrap style. And I'm gonna bring out my AK. And I'm gonna get my copy of phenomenology, and I'm gonna do this. <laughs> really throw people off, make them unsure if you're a civil officer. <laughs> Hi, I'm doing. 
Me and Masood, we're doing dialectical Salafism. Dialectical Salaf. I am so on board. Can we start that? Is that? No. Can we? Come on. We make the subreddit. I'm ready. Um, I'm gonna be. If we if so, we made if we just made up a fringe ideology like fucking Nick Land or whatever, we would make so much fucking money, dude. Yeah, I mean Nick Land got accelerationism off. Yeah. And now he gets paid to do meth and run around Hong Kong drawing maps inexplicably. He gets paid to do meth, run around Hong Kong and uh like have this weird like non-sexual harem of like 500 uh schizophrenic trans teenagers on the internet. With yeah. anime profile pictures. Yeah. That's what the, the I, other I, wing of support he has is like absolutely batshit insane Adam Wappen dudes. Yeah. Like That's if the... you if you are a Nick Land supporter, either you're a schizophrenic trans girl or an Adam Wappen dude, and there's no middle ground. <laughs> the Femboy Manlit Alliance. Yeah. Um so the reason that I say it's mostly bloodless is because the former chief of Secret Service and the ex-minister of commerce both end up in Germany. Uh, Zaire Shah's police force is trained by West Germany. Uh, it's really the only time that West Germany will significantly contribute to this discussion at all. Uh, other than that, they get cut out of funding every single Mujahideen group other than the Maoists, who are only relevant for about six minutes tops in Afghan history, not even in the podcast. Like, they are not relevant for that long for us. We're not even going to cover them, really. So, what we have not actually gotten into, I guess we actually have covered this already, but we did want to talk about the, like, the, the, uh, this is a fucking mess, but to try and describe the difference between the two communist factions in the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. So, the PDPA is established in 1965, right? Yeah. And so we have the we have almost an immediate splitting into these two factions. One is called the Kalk, which is a word that means masses, and one is called the Parchum, which is a word that means banner, like a flag. So the traditional division between these two, as exposited by pop historians, is that the Kalkis favor Leninist style party organization. These are typical and they are typically like organizing around the rural Pashtun people. Like, that's important. One, it's the rural people, and second, it's Pashtuns, which is weird because you have this, on the one hand, the disenfranchised peasantry, but on the other hand, also including that this is specifically the Pashtun majority, which to some degree does hold like a significant disproportionate amount of power in Afghanistan at the time. One thing about the and, Middle East is they throw the word Leninist around relentlessly, too. Yeah, they do. Like, That's Western true. commentators love to call things Leninist in the Middle East, and I do not know why. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, the, it's, the, uh, it's the East, bro. Like, I have seen the Muslim Brotherhood, Qutbi, Bin Wahab, who is, like, pretty much a contemporary of Lenin and definitely not a Leninist all referred to as Leninist party organization structures. So the problem with this distinction is that it's bullshit. Yeah. So the difference between the Kalk and Parchim factions tends to be one, a question of like organization two, a question of what the, what the immediate aims and goals of a successful communist revolution should be in part, though they're all partial. They probably provide the foundations, but what really like forms the 
biggest constitution of the difference between the two is entirely circumstantial. It's entirely the, the division, the Calks and the Parcham, the, yeah. the Calkis and the Parchamis are separate because they are. And because they are separate, because they are factions, they continue to engage in petty factionalism. Like to some degree, it is a like because this infrastructure exists where there are two factions of this party it tends to continue to foster itself in completely new and bizarre and arcane manifestations so it's really hard to talk about what do the kalkis do after they are pushed out of the government when 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 carmel is groomed by the soviet union and then becomes the leader of the new afghanistan uh, there is this idea that Kalki's en masse uh, joined the Mujahideen, which some did, some didn't. Some gave up the factionalism and became Parchamis. Some of them went home and just grilled for the rest of their lives. Or until, you know, the violence got too bad. There's not a, it's, 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 it's really hard to talk about these two different, these two groups as being like clear cut and separate and also meaningful. Because Honestly, we do even when they divide into four, that's true, right? When do they divide into four? Remind me. Uh, because they develop Satami Mili, which seems to only be defined by being identical to the other two, but anti-Pashtun. Uh, and then Garui Kar, which seems to be identical to the other two, mm -hmm. except Dostum really hates it. And so he rounds a bunch of them up and puts them in prison. Like, that's really the only difference. Okay, so we're finally getting to that fateful July 1973. So this is when the actual coup happens. So by this point, there's been the drought in the, in the crop-growing regions in Afghanistan that's been lasting for three years. That's lasted for three years by this point. Problem, actually four. Because it started in 69, and now it's 73. There is a growing amount of discontent with the very beginning of commercialization of Afghanistan because it tends to be, it's tending to displace people and make them completely landless. And it is, it is to some degree revolutionizing the proletariat just a little bit. Uh, this is something that gets a little bit interesting later on, but it's not that significant of a factor. Uh, so would you consider this to be like primitive accumulation in a very traditional sense? It's complicated. I'm gonna I'm gonna save that question for later. Okay, that's fair. When I think of, when I think of a good response for it. Um, where were we? Um, explaining the dissatisfaction with um, early industrial or er, early commercialization. So, no, I was trying to explain the dissatisfaction as in general, the commercialization small aspect. Just to go through it very quickly, what you will find is the the common theme throughout all of these different revolutions is that there are a lot of different people to keep happy in Afghanistan, ultimately. And nobody can succeed in doing all of them. But the problem seems to be that very many of them don't succeed at doing any of them. And so Dawood Khan is no exception to this. He does not actually, or I'm sorry, uh, Zahir Shah is no exception to this. Uh, we already talked about the constitution that was instituted in 64 and how it was a compromise between like this growing urban population that was developing a kind of Western style education 
and between conservative Islamic leaders and between the peasantry and between the landlords. And this promise of new democracy and this modernization project, which is really grinding to a halt. If you recall the conditions that we listed from that 73 New York Times article, still most of the country's ministers are illiterate. So Daoud Khan, a couple things. As prime minister, Daoud Khan was able to obtain a really vast quantity of weapons and arms from the Soviet Union. He is not backed by the Soviet Union during this coup, uh, probably quite the opposite. But he is able to he, he was able to attain this like supply of arms at some period in time. The coup is carried out by officers that are trained in the Soviet Union. But if you remember some of the other articles that we've read, uh, practically everybody in the country who was in the military was trained by the Soviet Union after a you know certain level. Because the Soviet Union yeah. was again, there was a heavy amount of dependency of the Zahir Shah government on the Soviet Union for these types of things. So what the two factions that Khan is able to enlist to undertake this bloodless coup happen to be the Pashtun nationalists, who we've discussed before with the Durans line and the conflict with Pakistan, and also the communists, who are dissatisfied immensely so with the Zahir Shah government. The Kalks, to some degree, also dissatisfied with what they see as the beginnings of commercialization, the beginnings of the like proletarianization of the rural peasantry in, Pac in Afghanistan. Right. So after this coup takes place, we see a, and again, this is going to be, you're going to see a lot of parallels here between the, uh, the failure of the Khan government and the failure of the Sauer, like the post-Sauer government, which is that the relationship with the Soviet Union rapidly deteriorates because Khan is, what Khan is trying to do effectively, and this is as much to preserve his own power and to preserve his own status as it is to as it is like in the best interest of Afghanistan as a whole, is to reduce dependence on the Soviet Union and to seek other allies, especially regional allies, but also other financiers. And this includes countries in the West. So the two that are mentioned by name explicitly are India and Egypt. Two, definitely, you might call them regional powers, certainly not superpowers, certainly not even like G8 style global powers, but they are regional powers who have close ties with Afghanistan, historically speaking, India especially. But you also see different uh, outreach to Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United States to try and get the financing for these private projects that will eventually help to modernize Afghanistan, so to speak. Now, this kind of outreach is opposed by the Soviet government, very clearly, because the Soviet government wants to maintain a like very nice and rosy relationship with Afghanistan, which is a you know rather useful tool to have in its tool shed. It is opposed by a lot of the communists, especially the Calcs. And I will say if there's any difference between the Calcs and the Parchamis, that's really substantial. It's that the Calcs are very, very ideological. That's yeah, a very fair description of them. Would we agree with that? They're ideologues. Yeah, they're no, uh, super fair. Yeah. And which seems to be the distinction between communist groups in general, I would think. Yeah, are you willing to make practical concessions or or not, or not? Yeah, but are we? You know, but but what concessions are actually practical? Is the question. Really, nobody's happy because after he after he uses the left to help institute this coup, he immediately discards them, and so you will see most of the leftist officers that were at his right hand uh, during the coup to help him take power purged by at least by 1975, and so this is going to be three years before the actual revolution takes place. 
the second revolution, the sour revolution. Right, which is about the time when Maoist organizations begin to pop up because they are pissed that they just got used and tossed away. I mean, somewhat understandably. So what's interesting about the reign of Dawood Khan is that it, it begins very explicitly authoritarian in very strongman dictatorial terms, and it is eventually loosened up sometime after the leftist officers are purged. Like it was actually, ironically, the purging of the leftist officers that was ushering in a, a more free Afghanistan in a very certain sense, which is that this is the time when power had been effectively concentrated. There was a effectively a one-party state. It was everything was done through the National Revolutionary Party at this time, which was the party of Dawood Khan. And the increased policing in urban areas that had occurred after the coup was starting to diminish, and they were starting to. It was an opening up of the country. It was an end of Sankoku, so to speak. Um, I meant to send you a link to this book. I completely forgot to last night. Yeah, you did, uh, it's so. called Art of Coercion by Antonio Giustosi, uh, The Primitive Accumulation and Management of Coercive Power. Um, you're going to you're gonna have to explain it then, because I didn't read it. So the reason that it becomes relevant here is because he argues that in every uh, state-building effort, there is a certain amount of ruthlessness and a certain amount of uh, coercion that is required, right? To build a national identity requires coercion. You have to convince people that they are no longer a part of this thing that they used to be, and now instead are a part of whatever country you are forming. Mm -hmm. Um, which, uh, the parallel he draws is between the early PDPA and Karzai. Uh, but this is kind of just a process that keeps repeating itself because Afghanistan never really has the opportunity to establish itself a firm national identity due to these like constant civil uprisings, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're seeing it again with Dawood Khan where uh, you, so you have to be ruthless against potential enemies, right? Yes. Um, and we've seen it in Iran and we saw it with Hafez al-Assad and- uh, Episodes that we've not done yet. Episode, yeah, right. Uh, Stay tuned so, for more, everybody. So when you, like, when these people build their countries or when they establish a national identity, they always know that the left helped get them in power, but they also know that ultimately communist goal is not to maintain a bourgeois revolution. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so that's really what's important about the 73 rebellion from the perspective of purging left officers is that a lot of these guys are communists and he knows that and he is aware of that. Yes. And I'm sure he's appreciative of their help, but also he is intimately aware of the fact that most of them will overthrow him if given half a chance. This is a liability ultimately. Right. Yeah. You're a risk. And that, and that strikes me as being fairly obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. So we've already talked about the, yeah, so I guess we've gone through the new democracy, the reforms in the age of Dawood Khan. And again, we see in the reign of Dawood Khan quite a few different radical social reforms, including the, again, this was the, so we finally got to the, I don't know, this is from 59. All right, forgive me, I'm retarded. This is actually the slides out of order. 
Also, Hayes can act like I didn't send him details, uh, but I asked him today about what his research was, and he literally told me that I had to wait and see. So, <laughs> I was well. I thought we were going to record at two o'clock, and so I had an hour left to like, and I wasn't even finished with my slides yet. And so it's just like, listen, I, I I could explain it, but I don't have time. So I gave you I gave you the rundown. You got the rundown. Be That's fair. I I yeah, finished that. I finished taking notes from that book at nine o'clock this morning. So again, not a huge amount of time. Okay. So we get to 17th, April, 1978. Do you know what happens on that day, Michael? Uh, the Tsar rebellion begins. Uh, close. What's the inciting incident? Oh, um, it is the death of Mir Akbar Khyber, prominent Parchami yeah, journalist. Yeah. Which the book, uh, Afghanistan under Soviet domination, describes as the moment seized as proof positive of American interference in Afghanistan. There were 15,000 people who attended Khyber's funeral and eventually, after the funeral was over, began to march in the streets of Kabul. They targeted the American embassy with big signs that said CIA out, US out. It was a moment that was symbolically very important for the communist movement in Afghanistan. This was a sort of unifying, it was the Afghani uh, equivalent of the scene in Straight Outta Compton where the Crips and the Bloods tie their bandanas together, right? Yes. Yes? Yeah. Would you? No, that's that's a fair have, description of it. Do you have some Akira Kurosawa samurai movie that you can think of to give a no. better, more? No. Okay, so we're going to use Straight Outta Compton. Is that, is I that got cool? nothing. We're sticking with Straight Outta Compton. Straight Outta Compton. Straight Outta, straight outta Kabul. I have some photos here, but I'm not showing you my slides, so I will I will show them later. We'll over we'll impose them over the video. So the other thing that happens throughout the administration of Dawud Khan that really culminates, that really manifests as the Salah Revolution in '78 was the difference in tactics between the Khalqis and the Parchamis. Like I said, one of the few like like real differences that will constitute the difference between the Kalki faction, the Parchami faction will be organizational disputes, organizational differences. How do we, how do we organize ourselves? And so what the Kalkis have done by this point is more or less complete a very heavy infiltration of the national army. This is the military. These are the people who do the coups whenever the coups happen. These are the juntas, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So 27th of April, the revolution unfolds and I'll put it right here. You'd see these two photos of the marchers carrying Kalki banners and photos depicting the leader of the Kalk faction, Nur Muhammad Taraki, who becomes the first president of the People's Afghanistan. We then get into Afghanistan in the communist pre-invasion era. That lasts for not long. So, uh, it, 20 months 78 to 79 so about yeah april 78 to actually really may it starts in may i think may 78 to december 79 it's like 17 months it's like it's like 7 plus 12 it's 19 months i'm great at math by the way yeah because taraki's death is in september yeah the soviet union invades in december of 79 yeah because, okay. because the, 
And that's the funniest. That's the funniest shit of all time, by the way. When that happens. Yeah, there's a lot. I'm sure you would. Maybe you would describe it differently, but I would describe it as the funniest thing that's ever happened. No, it's... the Soviet Union spent so much time, uh, like just talking amongst themselves, saying, you know, I really like this Amin guy because he's a good, strong man. And someone else goes, don't you know that like Amin is like, I think he might be a CIA plant. And someone's guy's, like, oh shit, he's a CIA plant. Are you? No, that's that's insane. So I'm as Chiraki's is... as Chiraki is losing his goddamn mind in '79. Uh, the Soviet Union is very desperate to keep him in power, and they're just like, whatever we do, we cannot let him in, in there. Shit's going to go down. Everything's going to get horrible. Everyone's going to die. We're going to lose the country to the Americans. We're going to lose the Cold War as a whole, or whatever they called it. And we're probably speaking Russian, but... And then Taraki gets shot, and Amin's in charge now, and they're just like, oh, no. No. And so they're just like, well, maybe he'll be good. And then Amin goes to the Americans, just like, would you like to help invest in our country? We kind of want to get away from these. And they're just like, oh, no. no. So one of the like funniest things Blunder. is that this whole split is uh, absolutely like ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Because anyone who was following Amin's speeches uh, got to hear him call Taraki things like, oh, I don't know, the great leader, the star of the East our greatest thinker it's a it's a kind of a repeat of the it's it's got parallels to the khrushchev situation where you have the like a cult of personality that is not even like particularly stoked by the the figurehead of it but it's like used by other people and to some degree stalin did the same thing stalin was never didn't ever seem particularly invested in his own cult of personality as much as no. he was like but he was super invested in the cult of personality around lenin Yes, but yes. there's also a difference. Like, Lenin is dead. That makes it all the easier, if anything. Like, at it that point, it... I guess I guess you're saying it's more like, you know, you're, you're basically sucking the dick of, like, a, of a dead historical leader at that point, of, like, a, of a, who's become a legendary figure, a martyr. Right. Lenin is a martyr, and for, like, the same reason that in, eventually in Nicaragua we'll see, like, Arlen Sue becomes a celebrated figure, or Che is a celebrated figure internationally... Because these people have a cult because they have done something that was genuinely incredible and were not alive to take advantage of a cult of personality, right? Because that's also important. Like, can you take advantage of this thing? So in the Calci Manifesto, which I was not able to find an online copy of, which sucks. I found one on eight books, though. So that was fun. Uh, I, also, I did. Yeah, I couldn't find one either. So these are all coming from secondary sources, but these are the four decrees, and multiple sources all agree that these are what they were. So, and again, I couldn't find the decree list. So if you do find it, uh, you can dispute it. Uh, yes, and if you because we would probably like to read it. Yeah, and if you ever and you've ever and if you think that we're being unfair, you can always just type rigged in chat. So, so decree number four is the again a decree that is undertaken in the traditional. A communist revolution just happened style but it also kind of conflicts with the idea that this is a okay so decree number four says decree number four basically declares full equality of all the major ethnic groups mike you get back here right now okay where were we we weren't doing anything you know that number seven decree number seven was the decree that people cite as being a big influence in the rise of the mujahideen but i disagree it was the abolition of existing marital practices so one of the marital, like the minimum age to wed was instituted, which did not exist in Afghanistan at the time. 
and they've they did not abolish the bride price they reduced it significantly that is a really interesting story for another time why they didn't abolish it like outright and how the like marital system in afghanistan like again this is also to some degree evidence that the Khalkis had some idea about like what reforms were possible to do immediately and what needed significant thought in reorganizing society before it could actually take place and one of them was bright prices because this was very this was a practice that was very intimately tied to like the system of land ownership the system of not even land ownership but just like organized society as a whole this is not they, they do not you know it is the fragile kind of ecosystem that exists in Afghanistan at the time is not something that can be immediately upended and replaced with uh, college dating and Tinder. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Right. There is and a, like <laughs> the bride price becomes a significant point of concession for the post-Soviet government too, interestingly. Yeah. Like that's one of the like big negotiating items they have at their disposal is like, oh, well, we have this law that limits this. Mm-hmm. So the two decrees that become incredibly important for the Kalki government are decree number six, which is what ends the widespread usury that happens, that that has been happening uh, since the reign of Zahir Shah and to some degree before. These are all the debts that we talked about that people were incurring because of the like beginning commercialization of the land in Afghanistan. And the second is decree number eight, which is the widespread redistribution of land. And that becomes a problem for a myriad of reasons. One is that it is way too fucking soon to be thinking about something like this. And it's not even a question of like, you know, it's not a question of us being like, well, China needs 70, 75 years to like accumulate a ton of capital and build mega cities before they can do real socialism. It's a question of like, this needs to, you cannot do step four before step one. And they're doing, we're looking at like step nine here, which is right. Radical, there's a... just, so like and step one would be, okay, uh, figure out who owns the land because we don't yeah. actually know. Because we don't yeah, actually like know. Yeah, like the five, the five year plan is important when Lenin implements it, right? Because we're seeing this kind of, uh, backwards, semi-feudal, semi-imperialist country have mm-hmm. to modernize parts of it. Take the semi-feudal parts of them and make them at least like a reasonably capitalist society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's concessions that are made even then. But we're also like, we're skipping that here. I'm going to bring we're, the presentation back. We're taking like a semi-feudal society and immediately providing it with the idea that we are going to be implementing socialism tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Here's all the slides I've been plagiarizing. Nice, nice. So this is what I wanted to show you. This is what constitutes basically the entire last half of my presentation. And this is just a timeline. This is a interesting timeline I found from compiled by Malcolm Byrne and Vladislav Zubok with assistance from the staff of the National Security Archive. So this is the NSA. This is interesting. Are you ready for this, Michael? Yes. 
Uh, I can't actually, it's making me, it's forcing me to have the, whatever, this is stupid. There we go. Now I can read, but I can't control it. Hold on. There we go. Now I can read and I can control it. June 18th, 1978, Babarak Karmal in Taraki's presence. And if you don't remember, Babarak Karmal is the leader of the Parchami faction, uh, symbolically, because these, their factions, they're not strictly organized. Taraki is the figurehead leader of the Kalki faction, who is the current faction that is governing Afghanistan in general. And this is because they have the like integration with the army by this point, after the Sal Revolution. Tells Buzanov and Karasov that he was isolated and the PDPA was on the verge of collapse. Taraki responds angrily that the party is united and we will run over those who oppose unity with a steamroller. June 78. August 3rd, 1978. This is the this is what I was talking about. The KGB delegation headed by Chief of First Directorate Vladimir Khrushchev visits Afghanistan and says that Taraki does not possess the physical strength or backing to continue leading the country for long. Amin is a far more impressive figure. During the visit, officers of the KGB station in Kabul described Amin as a homosexual and said it was rumored he had been recruited for the CIA. So that's two problems. One is that he's working for the Americans, maybe, allegedly. And the second is that he's gay. We don't want that. Mike is not even listening to me. Look at him. I am listening to you. What are you looking at? Uh, I was trying to also find a specific quote about Afghanistan. What do you think about the fact that uh, Amin was a homosexual, allegedly? I think that it's less likely than him being a CIA agent. I also don't think that it's like particularly significant to his history other than that, like. Well, he was really messy is my point. I think it could be very significant in that case. Yeah. Um, uh, Cause he lived for the drama. He was like a RuPaul gay, if anything. So the reason you were making was... it really, you were making it really hard for me to do my jokes here, Michael. I'm going to be honest. Why? You're just a wooden board, you know, just no, no feeling. Uh, so, so he makes a weird point connecting Amin and Amin as a an executioner of a coup, right? Because the U.S. certainly doesn't refer to it that way. Right. That is undoubtedly what happens. Yeah, no, it would be very, like, it's difficult to refer to it another way, honestly. There is not any kind of, like, official structure for succession in the country at current during this time. There's only kind of a government. <laughs> yes. Can I get back to my timeline? Yes. We're going to do we're going to do we're going to do the general summary of it at the end. I promise. So in March 1979, the Soviets are able to tell that the situation in Afghanistan is deteriorating very very quickly. I know we're jumping ahead a little bit. Uh this is the time of the Herat uprising, which I suppose we should talk about a little bit. I have a miniature slide right here. It's a mutiny within the Afghan army that has a nominative cause, according to some authors, usually older authors, as being a literacy campaign for women, which in this uprising is stoked by conservative ideologues who oppose it. 
So what this really becomes almost certainly is a mobilization of rural resentment against these continuing Calc land reforms. And we'll get to, we'll get it here in a minute about like why there was an existing struggle from the peasantry who would theoretically on the books benefit the most from these land reforms, right? So the typical, like, again, we'll get to that in a minute. Right. Most, the, pe most peasantry are not large landowners. Yeah. Well, the large landowners are certainly opposed to it, but you can always, you can see why that is the case. Right. You understand why, because they're not going to benefit. They're going to lose everything. But the peasantry is also, to some degree, significantly opposed to this. And this has been the conclusion that I've read in practically every source that I could find from all political sides of the spectrum. That includes the Marxist commentary I found. That includes like a sort of like a proto-neoconservative 90s book that I was reading. It includes documents from the NSA. They all seem to agree that for what seems to be inexplicable reasons to some of them, the peasantry did not really back the Calcus party for their land reforms. Most of them will point to the idea that like because the communists are very progressive, socially speaking, and they are theoretically very conservative socially they they oppose women's rights they oppose the secularization of society yada 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 that's why they oppose the communists and all their reforms but everything that we've looked at so far seems to indicate that that's complete bullshit so right, we believe because we, they are not significantly opposed to any other reformers to any of the like again the social reforms are not like Right. So whenever we get to a case as Marxists where it seems as if somebody is acting against their material interests, there are usually two explanations, I find. One is that the this like for like this actual action that you're imagining doesn't actually exist. So that would be the case where we would say, okay, well, if you look at the history, it would seem to suggest that the peasants weren't actually all that opposed to land reform. And the other case is that what we imagine is not in their material interests for one reason or another is. And so the conclusion that is drawn by the Marxist scholar that I've read on the topic is that is a very orthodox sort of like Leninist theory of stages idea, which is that it was not in their material interest because the commercialization of land ownership by this time had not been significant enough to gain a lot of peasant backing. And so you can see that on the right side over here, which says that several comparative studies from Hobsbawm, Wolf, Page, show that rural commercialization is often associated with the revolutionary peasantry. And that makes sense. They are effectively proletarianized. And so to some degree, one might see the like, continued development of these calcus land reforms as being a it's either going to be one some kind of weird maoist experience experiment or it's going to be like they are going to introduce the commercialization of this land which right. had at you least developed some which had at least developed some presence in in afghani society for people to like be able to recognize that it was happening and recognize that that was not in their interests per se not immediate interests anyway like there were a significant amount of people I shouldn't say significant the way that I've said it before, but like there was a not insignificant amount of people who were completely displaced by the credit and debt system that existed under uh, Zahir Shah. Right, which I think is what reminded me of primitive accumulation, right? right. Is this like large scale displacement? Um, I see. 
So this seems to be the conclusion that I've reached. I wonder if you dispute this. It seems as if the like the mystery unraveled does not reveal that much of a mystery. The reason that the peasants were mysteriously opposed to like pro-peasant land reforms is because it was not in their immediate self-interest. Based on the yeah. condition, based on the material conditions that they lived in, which is not anything remotely close to like imperial russia other than like a weird aesthetic semblance right it's it's much harder to convince people that something that will benefit them in five years is the thing they should do now than the thing that's going to benefit you for the next week especially when you need to put food on the table for the next fucking week mm -hmm. and you don't need to put food on the table for five years from now today so we return to the timeline we are now in july so Amin requests the Soviet government to send eight to 10 helicopters to the Soviet crews. You can tell that the, the tension between Taraki and Amin is growing by this point. And Puzanov advises Amin to find some form of government that would preserve Taraki's authority, but allow it to ameliorate the leadership's operational control, which is effectively to say we need to hirihitoize like Taraki to some degree. This might be on account of the fact that he had developed a cult of personality by this point. This might be on the account of the fact that maybe they figured he would be happy being like a Queen Elizabeth type guy just to like be a figurehead president, but we can, you know, sort of wrest control from him before he destroys the entire country. Is Taraki the one who is going to destroy the country, though? In the mind of, in the rhetoric of Amin, almost certainly. Well, yeah. I don't have any, I don't have any soft feelings for Taraki. I'm going to be super honest with you. I don't have any soft feelings for Amin either. I know I have a very strongly hard feelings for Amin. Yeah. Amin is what... no, so Amin is like, if you can't tell already, Amin is the absolute like most dog shit opportunist in this entire story. Yeah, which is a story filled with dog shit opportunists. This this is especially bad though. Yeah, no, he is uh like the king of a pile of shit. What you can tell from this is that, like, there is a, this is probably, this is the most, like, boiling pot situation that I think I've ever seen. Because Amin can tell that the Soviets are growing more displeased with him and moves to strengthen his position within the regime. The Soviets can tell that Amin is probably going to take power pretty soon. Because Taraki just can't do it. He's, he's not a, he's not, he's a beta male. He can't do it. He's, he's nothing compared to the Chad Amin. But Amin also knows that once he takes power, the Soviets are going to, this is probably what motivates him a little bit to seek ties with other countries, but also what spells his downfall. There's a bunch of factions here that are all like spelling their own, they're digging their own graves because they can see the writing on the wall. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like that because is a they, summary of this there is an inevitable story. conclusion and in attempts to preserve themselves, they are accelerating it. Yeah. Any like widely popular leader usually is undermined either by themselves or by someone else. Uh, who is usually trying to protect themselves. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it gets, it's a sad story. That's so really. He, here is the kicker. Early September 79, Chiraki leaves for the Conference of Non-Aligned States in Cuba. The Soviets are warning him that Amin is going to try and do something. And Amin does, which is destroy the Gang of Four, which are advisors that are close to Taraki in the Kabul government. Brezhnev himself and Andropov speak with Taraki on his way back from Kabul. They inform of Amin's actions in his absence. Brezhnev warns him personally of Amin's intentions 
and guarantees Soviet assistance and personal protection for Turaki. They are that invested in keeping Turaki, who has clearly lost his mind by this point. And you will see that in a little bit. September 14th. Well, you get a lot here just in two days. Taraki invites Amin to the presidential palace along with Soviet ambassador Puzinov. Amin arrives at the palace before Puzinov, accompanied by two other officials. When he enters the corridor that leads to Taraki's room, the guards open fire on everybody there, killing the two officials that he brought with him. But Amin escapes. He goes to the Ministry of Defense, calls the minister, and orders that Taraki is arrested and detained in his palace. And then he calls Puzinov to keep him from walking into a complete death trap. This happens, I don't know what the time frame is, same day. Amin orders tanks from the 4th Armored Corps to enter Kabul at 6.30 p.m. and surround important government buildings and town squares. So Amin decides to end it right now. This is it. Puzinov sees the writing on the wall as well. He calls the Kremlin. He says, Taraki will not hold power for much longer. It is going, this country is going to be led by Hafizullah Amin. There is no avoiding it. It is going to happen. If we refuse to make a deal with Amin, we are not going to keep Afghanistan, which is a major blow for the Soviet Union by this point. Yeah, they're invested deeply enough already that they are in too deep. They're like Kaiji at the bog. They they have to go all in. I don't know what that means. That the, the viewers know, they'll appreciate it. Good. I you know, they, they they're play they're play they're playing the game to win. Yeah, it's a, it's an it's an important like like geopolitically speaking, having Afghanistan one like modernized and developed, and two really integrated into your sphere of influence would be fucking astonishing. Anyways. Yeah, Afghanistan I, has always been a problem for that, though. Like, it's always been a country that people need and need to go through. Uh, and none of the countries that ever, like, are supposed to be assisting it ever seem to actually offer the assistance that they're supposed to. Mm -hmm. Afghanistan's had a really rough history. Yeah. It's fucked. Mike's going to cut that. That's okay. September 16th, 1979. At 8 p.m. local time, Kabul Television announces that Taraki has announced that he is no longer able to continue his duties. Amin retains his position as Prime Minister. Kabul Television also reports that four people died at the presidential palace. Hafizullah Amin takes over rule in Afghanistan September 16th, 1979. September 18th, 1979, Soviet forces near the Afghanistan border are placed on modified alert. So the Soviet Union, which has, you know, forces stationed on the border, wakes up. The inevitable has happened. Perhaps the worst has come to pass. Thanks, Heidegger. Perhaps not. October 8th, 1979, Amin gets the job done. 
in what you could only imagine is a Godfather Part Two ending style scene in Afghanistan history, Amin has Chiraki whacked. His death is reported as the result of serious illness. And he's smothered by a pillow. That'd be that'd be more cuckoo's nest, but okay. That is how he dies. Uh, was he smothered come, by a pillow? Yeah, the guys who come into his room tell him not to stand up from the bed, that they're going to kill him either way. And then he lays there while they smother him with a pillow. Week. October 10th, 1979. Andropov is authorized to bring Babrat Karmel from Czechoslovakia to Moscow. And this is important because the Soviets, by this time, are surely forming a plan. Yeah. Now, if you've noticed, the government so far has been run by Kalkis. The Soviet Union, actually, I didn't include this in the timeline, at one point, like, tried to, like, basically told the Central Committee in Afghanistan, you need to stop this. And so the Central Committee banned official use of the term Kalki and Parchami. But still, they knew. So Babrak Karmal begins to be groomed by the Soviet Union. October 25th, Amin makes an explicit appeal to Washington in interviews with American newspapers saying, we want the United States of America to consider realistically the affairs of this region and further provide us with aid. Fucking great decision. Two days later, Amin, referred, Amin reaffirms his desire for a resumption of American aid. speaking with the American embassy in Kabul. So what's interesting about this situation is that it seems to be a case of, again, like I said, the Soviet Union is getting ready to ditch Amin because he is making these appeals to the Americans. Amin only makes these appeals to the Americans because he knows the Soviets are going to replace him. The Soviets were going to replace him probably, but the time frame was probably a lot more lenient than he was initially thinking. But because he thinks he's in tight water, he's trying to get help for himself immediately. And because he is doing that, the Soviets now see the need to get rid of him all the more urgent. And because the Soviets see the need all the more urgent, he is even more desperate. So they are accelerating each other's decline. It is... It would make one of the best movies ever, I think, because the, the, the tension here is so, so high. It is actually amazing it takes until December for the invasion to happen. Yeah, seemingly every move Amin makes here is wrong in the most incredible kind of way. They had suspect, like, but they've suspected Amin of being like a, a Western stooge, so to speak, since before the like deposing of Taraki. This has been known. Yeah, that's what's, that's what's so, like, stunning about it, is, like, every step of the way, every person should have made a different decision, seemingly. Early in the evening, the Soviet Politburo Commission on Afghanistan gets Brezhnev to agree to dispatch troops to the country. December 12th, 1979. The full Politburo does not meet to ratify the move until December 27th. Just like Vietnam, it is not called a war or an invasion. It is the dispatching of troops. It is a is an operation which lasts for 10 years. Yeah. 
And that is the end of my background to the situation. All right. Uh, this has been Hayden DePriest and Michael Vegetelli. And this has been Timber Sycamore presents Afghanistan. Thank you for watching.